Welcome to podcast number two of your pre-wedding counseling. You are about to get married. And again, I want to say thank you for asking me to be the one who officiates your ceremony. It's my great honor and pleasure. I want to start talking to you today about the five love languages. There was an amazing book written years ago by a marriage counselor named Gary Chapman, and it's called very simply, The Five Love Languages. Here is his list. He was a marriage counselor for decades. Number one, touch and physical contact, like hugging, kissing, and holding hands. Number two, quality time. In other words, spending quality time with each other, having conversations, doing things together, sharing, etc. Number three, words of affirmation. This is to give somebody compliments, to thank somebody, give them positive verbal acknowledgement for the things that they've done. Number four is gift giving, buying and receiving gifts. And number five are acts of service, waiting on somebody, serving them, doing things for them. So now that you've heard those five things, I'd like you to pause in this podcast right now and identify your own. Which would you say is your primary love language? And it's very important that both of you do this. If you're together right now, again, hit the pause button on this podcast and discuss this amongst yourselves. Let your fiance know what your primary love language is. And if you have more than one, that's okay too. But most people have one that's a primary and then the other ones are secondary. Here's the point I'd like to make to you. Married couples often have different love languages that can lead to major conflict and big time misunderstandings and hurt feelings. So let me just give you an example. My love language is physical touch, but my wife's is quality time. And when we were first married, neither one of us knew this. So I would express love to her, and I still do, by hugging her, kissing her, rubbing her shoulders and her back. And I expected the same in return. Oh, let's hit the pause button. Well, not for real this time. <laughs> Whatever love language that we like to receive is the one that we like to give. In other words, we see that as love. So, is a physical touch person who would hold my wife's hand, kiss her, hug her, is an expression of love to her, I wanted her to do the same thing back to me in order that I would feel loved. However, I came to discover that physical touch is not my wife's love language. So she would not return the favor as often as I thought she should. What was the result? I felt hurt, rejected, and offended. Why? Well, we'll get to that. So I'd get home from work, and Becky would tell me about all the details of her day. What she really wanted from me was to, after I took my boots and stuff off, to sit down with her so that she could talk about her day and that I would talk about mine. However, she'd start giving me the details of her day and taking the time to, with me, and I would just give like these grunts in response. <laughs> then she would ask me about the details of my day, and I'd just shrug my shoulders and again, give a very minimal, short, quick response. As a result, she felt hurt and rejected. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, quality time was her love language. And so, in her opinion, she was expressing love to me by, by stopping what she was doing and spending the time with me to tell me about her day and to ask me about mine. So, when my response, when I was somewhat unresponsive, mostly unresponsive to these things, she then felt 
hurt, and rejected. Our love language in, is, in its expression are our comfort zones. And if your, your fiance's love language is different than yours, we are going to need to come out of our comfort zones and flowing, purposely flowing, actively flowing in our spouse's love language. And this is going to require some sort of training. So I'm very familiar with physical touch. That's no problem for me. But let's say that somebody over here is, really likes to receive gifts. They like to receive cards. Well, I'm not a gift giver. I'm not big into that. But if I know this person over here was really edified by that, I need to come out of my comfort zone and get that person a gift. So instead of giving into frustration when your spouse struggles to express themselves in your love language, extend grace, patience, and listen to this now, gentle coaching as they work through it. Now I want to pause right here in my narrative to say something to you. We cannot hold ourselves up to the standard, neither the husband or the wife can hold themselves up to the extremely high standard where your spouse should just know. They should just know without having to be told, without having to be asked, that this is what does it for you, that that's what does it for you. Don't look at somebody else's marriage and say, well, Johnny over there, his wife Mary never needs to ask him to do this and never needs to ask him to do that. Johnny just does it. Or Johnny never has to ask Mary to do this or to do that. To In his love language, Mary just does it. And that's the kind of marriage I want. You can't compare your relationship with somebody else's. You can't compare your spouse to somebody else's. You know, one of the Ten Commandments the, the, uh, is, Thou shalt not covet. But, you know, we tend to shorten that. God actually goes on in Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. That also applies to your neighbor's husband. Neighbor doesn't mean have to be the people living next door or across the street from you either. It's anybody that you know. Don't compare your spouse with somebody else and say, well, I wish that Johnny was more like, my spouse was more like Johnny, or I wish that my wife was more like Mary. Gently coach your spouse in your love language and be willing to let your scout, your spouse coach you. And instead of complaining or being resentful that your spouse isn't doing what you want, you need to ask and coach for what you want. That is the way of success. The way of failure is to set up an unrealistic expectation that without having to ask, without having to coach, that your spouse-to-be should just know what to do. They don't. And ladies, this especially applies to us men. Us men in general are not relationship-oriented. And so we definitely need to be coached and asked when it comes to your needs. You know, chances are good that your perception of love and its expression started with your opposite sex parent. And you may unconsciously look for a spouse who exhibits similar qualities and you'll expect them to perform the same functions. Let me just give you a couple of examples. A man whose mom waited on him hand and foot his whole life. She picked up after him, cooked all of his meals, tended to him when he was sick, washed all of his laundry. There's a good chance, gentlemen, that if your mom did that for you, you're going to expect the same thing from your new wife. And if she doesn't deliver, you're going to feel hurt 
and rejected, you're going to feel like she has really fallen short of what it means to be a wife. Now, let's say you're a woman who is daddy's favorite. Dad bought you everything. He doted on you. He treated you like number one. There's a good chance that you're going to expect the same thing from your new husband. And if he doesn't live up to this, you may feel like you're not very important to him or that he doesn't love you. I strongly recommend that you buy and read the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. You can download it to your Kindle within 10 minutes after listening to this podcast and you'll have it right there. I strongly recommend that you do that and that you go through that book together. It's an amazing book that will really open your eyes, not just to the needs and the love language of your fiance, but of all of your family, your friends, and your coworkers, you'll be one step ahead of everybody, especially in the area of relationships. Let's talk about conflict re resolution. You will have conflict. You won't agree on everything, and you cannot always agree to disagree. Some things have to be resolved and decided upon. Conflict often results in arguments, angry outbursts, periods of tense silence, and the three biggest sources of conflict in a marriage are this, money, kids, and sex. Let's talk about all three. Money. Discuss at length how you prioritize money and how you think it should be spent. Who should control the checkbook and do all these things before you get married. Decide ahead of time which one of you is better at managing money and put that person in charge of balancing the checkbook, paying the bills, and budgeting. So I'm going to pause here right now because I've done marriage counseling for well over 20 years, almost 30 at this point. And when couples begin to talk about their conflicts and money, almost typically there's one that says, well, so-and-so over, my spouse over here is the real spendthrift. You know, uh, she just goes out and just spends, 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 whereas I'm the person that wants to account for our money down to the last penny, and I'm the one always saying we really can't afford that. Now listen, the person who is good at accounting money down to the last penny, that is the person who should be in charge of the checkbook. That is the person who should be balancing the checkbook. But nevertheless, discuss these things ahead of time. It's very, very important. God considers you one. And you should have joint bank accounts, and the money should be ours, not his and not hers. Your spouse-to-be is not your roommate. You are one flesh with them. From the minute that I get, have the honor of saying to you, I now pronounce you husband and wife, in the eyes of God, you will be one flesh. And when married couples have separate bank accounts, and they do things separately, and they spend their money separately, guys... It's something that creates division and not unity. Just as when you're going to move into a house, there isn't his furniture and her furniture, his possessions and her possessions. It's an ours mentality. It's our house. It's our couch. It's our TV. It's our table. Now, there may be certain things that are unique to him, like if he's a hunter and he owns guns and the wife has no interest in guns, yeah, those are his guns. Or she has specific pairs of shoes, like heels in the garage. Well, you know, I don't look at my wife's heels and say, yo, those are mine too. But nevertheless, you understand what I'm referring to when it comes to the overall ownership of your, your money, your lands, your home, and your furniture. That should all be an ours mentality. Number two, kids. 
Decide right now how many kids you want to have and when. Negotiate. Now, gentlemen, I want to warn you of something. Even if you get your wife to agree right now about how many kids that she wants, she may very well change her mind later on. So right now you get her to agree to two kids and that's it. And she says yes. But then five years from now, she's thinking, I'd like to have a third child or I'd like to have a fourth child. So gentlemen, you need to remain open to that because things do change. But nevertheless, negotiate these things. Talk about styles and method of discipline in parenting. What's acceptable to you and what isn't. And again, though, I'm going to warn you. Right now, if you don't have any kids, no offense to you, but all you have are concepts. So for example, before my wife and I ever had kids, we both agreed we would never spank our children. We felt that, that was very outdated. But I'm going to tell you what, once those kids got to be a little bit older, both of us started spanking our children. So stuff will change as you experience what it means to be a parent, what it's like to be a parent. Uh, hardcore philosophies you thought you had in the beginning may go right out the window. <laughs> now let's talk about sex. Share your sexual needs and desires with each other verbally. Tell your spouse what turns you on and what doesn't. And again, having been married for a long time, gentlemen, I can warn you right now that your wife's needs and what turns her on is way different than yours. You see, men are like microwaves. You just hit the button for a minute and we can be all worked up and ready to go in no time at all. But women often need to marinate. It takes time. So just keep these things in mind because you have very different things, needs, and what turn-ons when it comes to this subject. I want to talk to you now since we're still in the, the subject of conflict resolution. After you fight... And there's a very good chance that you will at some point. Don't poison the well by running to family and friends to vent your frustrations about your spouse. I'm telling you right now, don't do it. You will absolutely poison the well. You will make things worse and not better. As a matter of fact, this concept right here is one of the biggest obstacles that myself as a pastor and marriage counselor, when I'm attempting to get a couple to reconcile and avoid divorce and avoid further conflict is that one or both have gone to their family, to their friends, and they vented their frustration about their spouse. Because I'm going to tell you right now what will happen. If you go to your family, for example, your blood family, and you vent your frustrations about your spouse, they will immediately circle the wagons. They will turn against your spouse and they will turn against your marriage. And then... Or if you go to your friends, they're going to do exactly the same thing. You know, some people, when I'm in the midst of marriage, uh, counseling uh, them on their marriages, they think that I'm some sort of a prophet or that I have some sort of inside information, which I don't, and I'm not a prophet. So, for example, um, I'll say to a guy, uh, so listen, um, now all of a sudden your buds or your family are going to come out. And when you tell them that you and your wife are having major issues and you could get a divorce, either one of your best friends or somebody in your family is going to come to you and say something like this. Man, I'm just going to be honest with you right now, Johnny. I never liked her in the first place. You know, she disrespects you. She treats you like garbage, man. I think you ought to kick her to the curb. And so the same thing happens to the wife and to the family. 
Suddenly your family and your friends who are circling the wagons, thinking that they are looking out for your best interest, believing that they've got your back, although that's false, they'll start saying to you things like, kick them to the curb, kick her to the curb, get rid of her, divorce her. You can do better than this. They'll say things like that. So guys, what you need is you need family and friends who will fight for your marriage. Now, I'm not talking about in cases of like physical abuse or adultery. That's a different ball of wax, just like Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 19. But for anything less than physical abuse or adultery, what you need are people who will fight for your marriage. So when you go to them and you're expressing issues that are going on between you and your spouse, they will come back and say, okay, what can we do to get the two of you to reconcile, to forgive, to change, and to come back together? Find somebody who will fight for your marriage and not against it, who will not drive a wedge between you and your spouse. And how you're going to set your, you and your marriage up to win is to not poison the well by just automatically going to mom, dad, brother, sister, best bud, inventing your frustrations about your marriage. Okay, let's now talk about forgiveness, reconciliation, and repentance. Forgiveness is unconditional and it only requires one person and it's absolutely required for a successful marriage. So for example, your spouse says something nasty to you and you're feeling hurt and offended. Now they are in spiritually in depth with you for the offense. Now let's pause right here because this is the Lord's Prayer. The King James Version of the Lord's Prayer goes like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay. Forgive us this day of our debts and forgive our debtors. So I know other translations say forgive us for our trespasses and those who trespass against us. But the original version says forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now listen to me. Whenever somebody sins against you, they are in debt to you. And things like apologies and whatnot supposedly are there to pay the debt. Now, forgiveness is you clearing that debt, whether they've apologized or not, and asking the Lord to help take away your hurt feelings. You never withhold forgiveness until the other per person repents. Reconciliation, however, is different. That is conditional upon repentance. It does require both parties and is absolutely required for a successful marriage. So same scenario as the one I just gave you. Okay, your spouse says something really nasty to you that's very hurtful. But they come to you later and they repent. They show proper remorse for their actions and they apologize. Then and only then can the relationship be renewed and get back on track. Proper reconciliation requires that both parties submit themselves to the examination of their conscience to reveal their accountability in a conflict situation. Please understand something, my dear listener. It's extremely rare that either party in a conflict situation is completely blameless. Don't fall into that self-righteous deception. Even if you only contaminated the situation by 10% and your spouse did it by 90, step up, take responsibility for the part that you contributed to and repent. Now, people often ask me this question and it's a good one. They'll say, well, Pastor Scott, how do I know the difference between like a true repentance and apology in a false one. 
All right, I'm glad you asked me that. Repentance actually means to change one's mind. And here's a good illustration. You're going north on a highway. Then you get off the exit, you go under the underpass, and now you're going south. That is repentance. Apologizing alone is not true repentance. But rather, when we stop justifying our behavior and truly turn away from it within the mind and the heart first, recognizing that it's wrong. So here's another example, a very common one. An abusive spouse commits violence, apologizes later, but then does it again a month later. That person is not truly repented, even though they may have apologized, even though they may have gotten down on their knees and cried. They didn't truly repent. So how do we tell the difference between a true and a false repentance? And part of that litmus test is by the type of sorrow that a person exhibits. False sorrow centers on the self and is motivated by self-serving and self-preserving desires. So example, a child is caught red-handed with her hand in the cookie jar before dinner, but they're only apologizing because they're trying to avoid punishment. Let me use another modern day version, especially since there's all this uh, online learning. Your kid is supposed to be on their laptop doing math, but instead they're on there playing games. <laughs> okay, they may very well apologize, but maybe they're only doing it to avoid punishment, not because they realize they truly did something wrong. In other words, that kid is still justifying his behavior and will likely do it again and just be smarter about it the next time. Lying in a marriage is completely motivated by self-serving and self-preserving desires and is never justified. What is true sorrow? Here it is. True sorrow centers on the offended party and is motivated by a sympathetic and compassionate love for that party and desire to see them emotionally healed and restored from the conflict. They recognize that their words and actions were wrong and they don't justify them any longer. They recognize how their words and their actions negatively affected the spouse and seeks to make things right for the sake of their spouse and the marriage as a whole. Now, last, I'm going to close with this. This is how we contaminate our marriages. You are bringing in all of the baggage from your past into your marriage, and it will affect your marriage in a negative manner. You must identify this baggage, confront it, and resolve it. Men, your main example for a husband is likely your dad or your stepdad. So therefore, your default mode will be to act and react just like he did, especially in conflict situations. Now, I'm just warning you right now. When you were a kid and you saw your parents fight, and after the fight, maybe your dad went in and he grabbed a beer and sat down in front of his recliner and turned the TV on, there is a much better chance that you will do exactly the same thing. So if your dad or stepdad drank himself silly after a fight or got in the car and drove off, you know, ran from the situation or put his headphones on and retreated into his own little world, there is a darn good chance you will follow the same prescription. If you suffered some sort of abuse or something as a kid, so, some traumatic experience, that will absolutely affect your marriage. Ladies, the exact, the exact same thing applies to you with your mom or your stepmom. How did your mom hair, handle conflicts with your dad? How did they do it? What did they, did they yell? Did they scream? Did they shut down? What did they do? Chances are, unconsciously, 
you will follow the same pattern. So let me ask you this question. What traumatic events of your past might contaminate your marriage? Was there some sort of physical or sexual abuse? Was there adultery, a bitter divorce, abandonment? These things will absolutely try and take away and subtract from your marriage. And you must identify these things and you must bring them to the surface and tackle them or it will suck the life right out of your marriage, whether you want it to or not. Okay, uh, that's all I have for you. This is podcast number two. So do this next immediately. So number one, if your fiance has not yet heard this podcast, make sure that she or he does that immediately. Then after both of you have listened to it, send me a text, a private email message, or a call just to let me know that you listened to both of these podcasts. If you have any questions, by all means, ask me. There's no dumb question, no bad one. I will do my best to answer whatever it is you ask or whatever you'd like to discuss. Thank you, and I will see you on your wedding day.